And this is what it says. When Sambalet heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their, restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah, the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What they are building, even a fox climbing up on it, would break down their wall of stones. Hear us, O our gods, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their heads. Give them over as plunder in the land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their hearts. But when Sambalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's wall had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our gods and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out, and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemy said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and will kill them and put an end to their work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. When our enemies heard that we were among, we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our own work. From that day on, half of the men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows and armour. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. So we continued the work with half the men holding spears, 
for the first light of dawn till the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can serve us as guards by night and as workers by day. Neither I, nor my brothers, nor my men, nor my guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon, even when he went for water. Zoe, I'm going to invite you to come up and I'm going to pray. I've just been reliably informed YouTube is now live as well. So if you normally watch on YouTube and you want to stick it on your telly at home, you can do that from now. We are fully live on both of our channels. I'm going to pray, Zoe, and I'm going to hand over to you as you preach to us this morning. Father God, we want to thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord God, for the life-giving uh, nature that it gives us. We thank you, Lord, how it challenges us. And we thank you, Lord God, that as we think about rebuilding projects and programs here in the light of everything that's happened over the past few months, Lord, will you burn within us this morning a holy excitement for what you're doing? Lord, even if it scares us, even if it makes us feel uneasy, even if we're uncertain as to what the future holds, Lord, may we hear your voice. And may we, as the people of Israel said here, we must rebuild. We can surely do it. Thank you that the battle belongs to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Shall we dive right in and consider together the words that Luke has just read to us here in the hands of Pastor Paul as we continue our sermon series, A Time to Be. Hasn't this been a word in season for us as a church, or even the wider church as a whole, as we find ourselves in a time more than ever in need of a move of God? I don't know about you, but I've been so encouraged as we have uh, explored together chapter by chapter this book where we have seen together that our God is a God of rebuilding and he is in the business of rebuilding today too. He builds us up to act as a witness for him to reach a community around us that is so in need of God and it's encouraging as we read how we see God's plans have come to fruition, and that's our prayer too today, that God would use us to see his plans come to fruition. And Luke has challenged us so far, inspired us, and asked us how we are ready to get involved. We are in the middle of a rebuilding project. And as Luke shared last week, we believe that God is saying to us, I am doing a new thing, do you not? perceive it. We've seen how Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king living 800 miles from Jerusalem and he hears of the desolation of the walls and how they're lying in ruin and he is impacted to do something about it. He's cut to the core and he cries out to God in prayer and his prayer leads him to act. And we've seen together how often we are the answer to our prayers. Luke has outlined both the reality and practicality of service and how this will be a challenge for us if we're up for getting involved. 
And today we're going to consider this challenge, this hard path that God calls us to walk even further as we realize and wrestle with the fact that when we are obedient to the rebuilding that God has asked of us, we will face opposition. And we're going to look at how Nehemiah responded with obedience. We've seen so far how we are to be a people of prayer, a people that work together in community, and how we are united by a vision. And if we're led by godly leaders, then we all will have a role to play right where God has placed us. And here's the thing that I'd love us to grasp right at the beginning and consider together, where has God placed you? What is he asking of you right now? Where are you for him to use you? And that's the thing, it never ceases to amaze me that our God chooses to partner and use us in the rebuilding wherever we are at. How it's 100% of us and 100% of him and us together working on this project. I'm going to intersperse some thoughts in Nehemiah chapter 4 with a few stories that I cling to each time I remember what it is that God has asked of me. How when I'm faced with opposition or when I feel tired or I feel deflated in the fight, I return to time and time again for encouragement. That I go back to to realize what God has asked of me. And I wonder this morning if there are verses, if there are um, stories or encouragements or sermons that you return to time and time again when you need that reassurance that you are placed where God has placed you and you're doing what He's asked. And one of those moments that I return to time and time again was kind of my call to ministry, if you like, or the call um, to the first step that's got me to where I am today. And it's a memory I return to often, and I was 18 um, at the time, and I was at a youth event one night in Exeter, and the speaker's words resonated with me in a powerful way. At that point, I was studying my A-levels, and I was about to go to Exeter University to study theology, and I was feeling more and more uh, disturbed that that wasn't the right thing. I'd seen the course outlined, I'd chosen the accommodation where I was going to stay, and I craved to do something more practical. And if you know me well or have ever spent any time with me, you'll know that I'm a family-orientated person. And I was beginning to struggle with the thought that I was going to have to move out and go and live away from home. And on that evening, uh, Swim were there, Southwest Youth Ministries, profiling who they are and what they do. And the speaker spoke on these words, do what you can where you are, with what you've got. And I was prayed for that evening, and I was overwhelmed by the practicality of those words. Do what you can where you are with what you've got. And I had this striking sense that God had something for me to do where I was. And I get that sometimes God calls us to move, and I've moved a, a couple of times from that point since, and I know what that's like for God to call you and move you and place you somewhere differently. But I had this overwhelming sense that God had something for me to do where I was with the gifts that he'd given me. So to cut a long story short, I ended up um, deferring my place at university, 
and joining South Rock Youth Ministries uh, to, to do children's, to train in children and youth work. And the church that I was attending for 20 minutes a week before being a waitress um, at a local pub to near where we lived created a placement for me to serve their children and young people. And I got to live at home and learn and study theology, theology in the most practical way and also be at home as we um, embarked on the journey of my dad's diagnosis. But the encouragement is that God is in every small practical detail. And those words resonate with me and I return to them time and time again. When I feel opposed, when I feel tired, when I wonder what on earth am I doing, I return to them, do what you can where you are with what you've got. And I find myself praying them over myself. Lord, I am here. I am where you have placed me. I am doing what I can with the gifts and ideas and vision you have given me. Would you use me? Would you remind me of your calling? Would I know your presence with me in this place? This morning, I wonder if there are moments or callings or verses or scriptures that you return to time and time again when you might be faced with opposition or just overwhelmed by the task that's at hand. And that's the backdrop for our chapter today as we think about the words that Luke shared already from Nehemiah chapter 4. The opposition that the, the people faced as they continued to rebuild the walls. And I want us to dive right in to think about the opposition that they faced that we've already had read to us. And point number one this morning is opposition is inevitable. We will experience opposition as we rebuild together. Never said this morning that this is going to be a message that you want to hear because the challenge for us is that if we are doing what God has called and asked of us, we will face hardship. We will face difficulty. But I think it's good for us to recognize that at the beginning as we embark on what God has for us as a church because then we are prepared rather than surprised. And this is a concept, if I'm honest, that I really struggled with at the age of 18 when I started working for the church that I did. And I could not get my head around as I started out in ministry. Because in my very practical black and white sense or approach on life that I had, I found myself crying out to God asking, I'm doing what you've asked of me, God. Why is this so difficult? And why am I getting hurt in the process? And it took me a while to figure out that ironically, when we sign up to the God-given vision, to the rebuilding project that he's given us, we will face opposition. We will not be exempt, but rather just the opposite. We can almost guarantee that we will be opposed. In the life of Jesus, he is constantly challenged. He is constantly tested by fellow believers, by Pharisees, by teachers of the law. He was opposed to the point of death and death on a cross. Let's tune in again on some of the opposition that Nehemiah and the builders faced in the chapter that we've just had read to us and the forms that it came in. Firstly, the opposition that we read came from insults and ridicule. 
So we see that Sambalit, who was the governor of Samaria, and Tobiah the Ammonite became angry and were greatly incensed at the progress that they were making. So they began to ridicule the workers. I think we're all aware we've had words spoken over us before of insults or harsh words, and we know how painful and how cutting that can be. And I think it's evident from the passage that we've read that the aim was to try and stop the Jews from working in the project they had given them. Some of the insults included, what were the feeble Jews doing? Will they finish in a day? Even a fox can fly that week. The task is way too big. They are never going to make it. What on earth do they think they're doing? They are a tired and a broken people. And I wonder this morning if we can resonate with some of those words. Have you ever had words spoken over you that you will never accomplish anything? The pain of those words that sometimes we might feel. Why is opposition inevitable? Because we have an enemy who is against the rebuilding project. Who Peter describes to be a lion who prowls around waiting or looking for someone to devour. But what does a roaring lion do? It announces its presence by striking fear in the one that in the eye in the lives of the enemy. And at times it might be loud. And we see in this passage that the opposition that they were experiencing was loud. It's clear that Sambalet and Tobiah were making themselves known and their presence known in the community. But the people were not overcome. How does the enemy oppose us? I think his opposition and attack can be categorized in three ways. All with the aim to immobilize us in fear and to stop doing and experiencing the life that God has for us. Category number one, I don't know if you can resonate with it. You're never going to make it. Don't get your hopes up again. You'll never find freedom. The way you are is the way you will always be. Or category number two, you're not good enough. You're not worthy of God's love or help. Or maybe you can resonate with the third opposition, the third lie of the enemy, that everybody is against you. They're all talking about you and you are on your own. The opposition that we read in this passage started as insults and ridicule and turned into something more than just intimidating threats. Verse 8, if we read together, says this. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble. An outward attack on Nehemiah's people would look like treason. Because we know from Nehemiah chapter 1 and chapter 2 that he had the protection of the king. But rather we see intimidation and discouragement and exhaustion spread through the camp. We see the opposing uh, tactic of fear spread amongst the people. The opposition is at first external and we're introduced to those two characters in Nehemiah chapter 2. But in addition to this this morning, we are saying that opposition is inevitable. 
that we can glean from the passage that opposition that Nehemiah was facing was not new. When Nehemiah arrived in Judah, he was greeted with opposition. The opposition to the rebuilding of the walls in Jerusalem had been going on for over 90 years by those who settled in the area after the Jews were taken captive. So this was not a new thing Nehemiah was facing. He knew what he was getting himself into. And we're introduced to Sambalit and Tobiah the Ammonite in Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 10. And we read that they were disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. By learning the context for the reasoning that the opposition comes from, we learn this practical tool that can help us when we are facing opposition. That there's wisdom in separating the people from the problem. If we look at Sambalit, for instance, we can understand that principle. Sambalit was the governor who was holding an anxious grip on his reign of power. And we can guess that he was intimidated by Nehemiah. Nehemiah wasn't an ordinary exile. He came as the personal advisor and cupbearer to the king. And he arrived in Jerusalem with the king's approval. A rebuilt Jerusalem would have been a threat to the authority. And they were threatened by the increased number of Jews and exiles returning to be part of the rebuilding project. But Nehemiah recognizes the difference between the problem and he doesn't personify it. What do I mean by that? Sometimes it's helpful for us to separate the people from the problem. And we see again in Nehemiah's leadership and his strategy and his ability to pray and to problem solve that he does this. The principle of seeing the problem and not the person is a biblical principle. We see a grace-filled God who goes to great lengths to deal with sin, but rescue the sinner. We see a God who, despite the incredible problem of human sin, loves the world. But this opposition that we see infiltrates the Jews. If we read verse 12 together, it tells us, Then the Jews who lived nearby came and told them ten times over, Wherever you turn, they will attack us. This is really quite interesting. We learn that Jews, who were not involved in the rebuilding, but rather lived nearby to, to the enemies, to the external enemies, came and told the people, helpfully, ten times over, you are in danger of attack. Right at this crucial halfway stage where we see energy levels and initial enthusiasm to do the project that God has called them to do kind of pass away. And there's a challenge for us here not to become despondent or let opposition infiltrate our community and deflate us in the process. It's not a question of if this opposition comes, rather when this opposition emerges. And I think we're left with two questions to ask ourselves when we find ourselves in that position and in need of God's perspective. Firstly, the first question is, how much opposition actually is there? And then of all the voices that we hear, which one should we let guide us? 
much opposition is there? Sometimes we have to do the maths, again, speaking practically and pragmatically, how many people are opposed? Sometimes we make the mistake of mixing loud voices and equating that to mean lots of opposition. I was really struck preparing for this today, how last week when I did our Bible reading, reading out Nehemiah chapter 3, attempting to pronounce all those names of all the people that were involved in a project where God had placed them, the number of people that were with the project, for the project, part of the project, part of God's rebuilding. And today we come back to two names, two government officials that are opposed. Two names get mentioned that are adamantly against because of their personal pride and status. Yes, we see this opposition grow and infiltrate the community and bring caution to the people and see how Nehemiah responds. But when we are faced with opposition, we have to ask ourselves how much op actual opposition is there? And then, of all the voices that we hear, which voice will we let guide us? What astounds me is Nehemiah's response of obedience. Let's consider together how he responds, how he uh, demonstrates the ability to keep on keeping on to the people as we explore point number two together, the call to obedience. Nehemiah remains obedient to the task that God had called him to do, even whilst he faced opposition. Another significant moment that I return to and return to multiple times in the last year that I've been here on staff um, at, at Hope is a moment last summer in a sermon, again, another sermon that I heard that the word kind of resonated with me. And uh, last summer I was at a conference uh, for the big move uh, here to Plymouth. And I went uh, praying that God would speak to me, that God would outline what it was that he was asking me to do when I moved here. And in true Zoe style, I wanted every detail. I wanted the big picture. I wanted clear instructions of what he was asking of me. And instead, I heard uh, the words of the sermon resonated with me quite powerfully. And it was a sermon all about obedience, where the speaker said, define obedience as doing the last thing God said until he said stop or do something different. Let me say that again. Obedience is doing the last thing God said until he says stop or do something different. The last thing God had asked of me was to move. And he said he was leading me one step at a time. So obedience looks like moving, being led one step at a time until God said stop or do something different. So I didn't get the big picture. I didn't get the clear instructions. Instead, I got this sense of an end, a starting, and an ending. God will say stop, or he will say do something different when that day comes when he calls me somewhere else. But in the meantime, God is asking of me to be obedient, to do the last thing he said until he says stop, or do something different. God requires of us small steps of obedience. 
And God is still asking of me today the same thing he asked me at the age of 18. Do what you can where you are with what you've got. And of all the voices we hear in the heat of opposition, which one will we let guide us? Let me ask you this morning, what was the last thing God said to you? Has God said stop? Has God said do something different? If not, then living out of obedience looks like doing the last thing God said until he says stop or do something different. And we see this strikingly in Nehemiah's response. He carried on faithfully and obediently with the task that God had given him. He wasn't swayed, he wasn't flustered by the rising levels of anxiety or the ridicule or the threats or the insults that were being thrown at him or his people. But obedience looks like carrying on with the rebuilding project. Let's look again at verse 6. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked at it with all their heart. Obedience looks like working at the last thing God said, working at the task that he's given you wholeheartedly. Obedience isn't just something that we continue with doing begrudgingly. And if, if God has called you to a task, then he's calling you to do it with all your heart. He's calling us to be determined until we complete it, even in the face of opposition and discouragement. And time and time again, we see Nehemiah's response to be a response of prayer and strategic planning. Let's read verse 9 again together which comes after Nehemiah has responded to the immediate threat that we see that they are under. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. We see Nehemiah here again seek God in prayer before he seeks action. action, And then he comes with a strategic plan of response. And then later we see how Nehemiah addresses the people and again points them to God and his character. Verse 14 says, After I looked these things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials and the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them, who is great, who is awesome, and fight for your brothers your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. Nehemiah outlines his defence strategy, a plan that would both unite and protect the people. Half the men worked while the other half stood guard and watched. And then we see him install a clear communication strategy to reassure the people. And in reading this and in seeing Nehemiah's obedient response, I want us to gather and ask what we can, um, or how we can apply that today to our lives. We see that obedience is intentional. It requires from us a wholehearted response. 
to wholehearted, prayerful response, where we strategically plan how we're going to be obedient to the task that God has given us. Obedience can look like perseverance with careful planning. We have to ask ourselves, and I believe God is speaking and asking of us this morning, that we need to be on guard as we keep on keeping on in obedience. I believe that God is asking us to be on guard for one another. Dealing with opposition is not an individual battle. So where do you need to plug in this morning to be part of the rebuilding that God is doing? By looking out for each other, we then free each other up to do the work that God has called each one of us to do. We need to be confident that we are ready to help each other in the face of opposition. We need to guard our words and our action towards one another. We need to ask whether we are contributing and encouraging others to the task that God is calling us to do here, or whether we are participating in or letting discouragement infiltrate our community. I don't know where you're at this morning, but I want to ask you, how well guarded are you? Do you have people that are watching out for you, who are helping you practically, or who are praying for you? I wonder again, what was the last thing that God asked you to do? Have you buried that thought? Is he reuniting in you this morning by his spirit, a task or a vision that he gave to you years ago? I wonder this morning what wholehearted obedience looks like for you and what your next step of obedience might be. Or maybe you're stuck in a place this morning where you feel opposed or you're halfway through a task or a project or an idea or a dream that God has given you and you just feel discouraged. And I want to reassure you this morning feeling will pass. Can I speak over you again the same words that Nehemiah shared with his people? Don't be afraid. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, your family. Why? Because the stakes are too high to give up. The stakes were too high for Nehemiah and the people. The concern hadn't changed. The walls of the city remained unrepaired, leaving them defenseless and vulnerable. And our concern hasn't changed either. God loves you way too much to leave you where you are. And he wants to use you, transform you and rebuild you to reach a world that is hurting and is in desperate need of Jesus. Let me pray for us before we consider this morning what our obedient response to God might be. Lord, we remember this morning and we say how great and how awesome you are. 
we recognise the call you place on our lives to do what we can where we are with what we've got. Lord, we recognise that opposition is inevitable. But we say today, we are in anyway. Would your voice be the one that we listen to? Above all others, we pray. Would we walk in obedience to you as a community who will commit to look out for and encourage one another? Lord, only you know where we're at. So we invite you this morning to come and meet with us today in this place and in our homes, wherever we might be, to bring to remembrance tasks that you've assigned to us, dreams that you've given us. And I pray this morning, if there's anyone who might be feeling discouraged or previously have been opposed, Lord, would you draw near to us, we pray. Would you give us the strength for the fight? the vision for what it is that you're calling us to do. And Lord, would you silence the voice of the enemy? And would we walk in your victory today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to invite the band to come up, and I'm going to ask Luke to come and help us respond this morning with what obedience might look like for us. wonder what God has been speaking to you about this morning as Zoe has been preaching. I wonder where you have been challenged this morning looking over this particular passage. And I want to encourage you, if, if God has been speaking to you specifically this morning, to write it in the Facebook or YouTube uh, chats. We would love to hear what God is doing at the moment and what God is saying to you. I don't know, for me, one of the passages of scripture which really stood out to me as Zoe was preaching this morning was actually one of the insults which was given by the the people and it, it, it was this one can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are to me that's an insult, but there sounds to me in that question something which is also prophetic. I'm reminded as I hear that particular passage of the passage in Ezekiel chapter 37 where uh, we see this question over the valley of the dry bones. Where Ezekiel is looking out over this vast valley and he's asked the question, son of man, can these bones live? And although this was an insult, there is something prophetic about it. And the way we respond to that prophetic call will ultimately determine where we go. Can they bring the stones back to life from those rubble, heaps of rubble, burned as they are? As we respond in worship today, the same question is asked of us. Can these bones live? In a pandemic-filled world, can the church be the church that we are called to be? Even when we're tired, even when we're burned, even when it feels like everything is broken, can these stones live? And I believe the response of the church today is to be yes, in the face of opposition, 
in the face of people saying, you might as well give up and go home and forget about it. Let's be a people who respond in faith and say, God, here we are. We're believing wholeheartedly that you're in this rebuilding project, whatever that looks like, wherever it takes us. I'm going to invite you, if you're in the room, to stand. And we're going to worship God. We're going to respond to God in song. And again, you can't sing if you're in the room, but you can still worship. And let's ask God this morning what he would have for us specifically today. Let's worship him.